You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Have you ever been to a funeral? An interesting question I know to consider. Uh, perhaps you have not. Maybe because you're young and you have not had the opportunity to do so, you've not been required to do so by a relative. Chances are, though, you don't have to have lived life for very long and you've gone to a funeral. Perhaps someone that you knew from work, perhaps someone you were related to from a distant relationship or perhaps even more personal and painful, the the death of a child, the death of a spouse, the death of a sibling. These painful funerals, increasingly closeness and relationship, just overwhelmingly can overwhelm people with grief. One thing that's true about funerals, whether it be somebody that you know personally or you've only heard about distantly, there are lessons to learn at funerals. And some of them are quite practical, and I'm even happy as a point of introduction this morning to make sure you learn these lessons yourself. So, for example, before you die, you should have a will. I say this because I know of people who have had assets, they've had houses, they've had possessions, they've had investment uh, accounts, and then they have passed away with no decision made by them prior to their death, which left a lot of difficulty for their surviving relatives. Be wise to have a will and not hard to do. There's other lessons to learn, like have term life insurance policy, especially if you're married as a husband to provide for your wife and her children after your perhaps untimely death. Make sure you know that your loved ones who will survive you actually know the passwords to your accounts, lest they have to get an IT hacking degree to figure out how to access the things that you have left with no information to them to access. It's not just practical lessons, it's spiritual lessons. Lessons like life goes on for others who are still alive, even though you've passed away. This is sometimes hard to accept and even hear because we'd like to think that our impression, as meaningful as it is to others and as loved as we are by others and we love others, that they will seemingly, with their cars being decorated in our name or perhaps tattoos printed on their bodies or perhaps other means of memorizing who they are, quite honestly, the reality is the billions of people left, almost all of them will not remember you, but a generation or two removed after you've passed away. Solomon teaches this in Ecclesiastes. Another lesson to learn is that you will die. Everybody dies. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when and how that you will die. Another lesson, as even Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, is when all things have been considered, is that when we're considering the reality of the shortness of life, that we should ultimately in this life fear God and keep His commandments. That ultimately only those who have faith alone in Christ alone have the hope of forgiveness. Everybody else is seemingly crossing their spiritual fingers and sort of betting, if you can, on a, on a long shot, hoping that God will accept you because something you've done or not done or enough things you've done or not done. And this way of sort of hoping to secure your future 
is a fool's errand. Only those whose faith alone is in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins will be forgiven and accepted by God. His word says this himself. John chapter 14, verse 6, he declares this. As I think about life, I'm reminded in these funeral lessons about a young man by the name of Charles Thomas Studd. You got to admit, that's a pretty cool last name. He literally was a stud. Studd was born into a wealthy family in England and destined for affluence. He did not become a Christian, though, until his college years at University of Cambridge and began following Jesus in faithful obedience. Just so you understand who C.T. Studd is, he was known by, who he was, you think about Michael Jordan and his legacy in basketball, and everybody talks about Jordan and other names by compare and contrast. C.T. Studd was like the Michael Jordan of cricket. Now, some of you have to Google the word cricket to know what even I'm talking about. It's a global sport, even well-known today. And it was expected that C.T. Studd would come back to England and play professionally, returning to London specifically to do this. And yet, to the surprise of everybody, he left all that behind, and he became known as what's known as the Cambridge Seven. The Cambridge Seven was a group of culturally affluent men who laid down the fame and flattery of men and became evangelists in unknown countries where no one knew them and could care less about them. They went to places unknown in order to be unknown in order to make Christ known. That was their legacy. C.T. Studd was a husband to Priscilla, father to four daughters and two sons, both of which those sons died in infancy. It's likely that most of you have never even heard of Stud before this very moment this morning. But heaven knows his name. Heaven knows all that he accomplished in his life. He died in the Democratic Republic of Congo at the age of 47 after his wife died. Before he died, he wrote a poem by which I want to read to you an excerpt this morning. It's titled, Only One Life. Twill soon be past. He says, Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Whether it's learning from the death of someone in history like C.T. Studd, someone that you are married to, the loss of a close friend, or even the death of a popular person in contemporary culture, funerals have a way of teaching us lessons that we might not otherwise learn through any other means. Well, today, we come to a funeral in the Scripture. And it's no ordinary funeral of no ordinary person. And to see it, let me ask you to open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1. Two weeks ago, I attempted, and I mean to emphasize the word attempt, to give a brief introduction 
to the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Genesis, to help set the scene for the beginning of history leading up to where we are in our scriptures this morning in the book of Joshua. If you're not familiar with the Bible, and many of you are not, the Old Testament scriptures, as they're often known by Christians, known, if you will, by Jewish readers as uh, the Talmud or the law, specifically the law, the prophets, and the writings. The law is the first five books of the Bible. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those first five books of the Bible are written by Moses. God gave him the word and he recorded it and it has been preserved for us throughout history. You move into then what's known as the writings. And the writings are anything from Joshua to Psalms. Sometimes it's often referred to even by Jesus as the Psalms because the Psalms are the longest book of the collection of writings. And then you have the prophets, anywhere from you know, Daniel to Jeremiah to Hosea to Malachi. They're sometimes known as major and minor prophets only because of their size, not because of their importance. In the past, as a church, a couple of years ago, we were in the book of Deuteronomy, and I encourage you, if you've never listened to those messages, to go back into our channel. You can find them on YouTube or other places that our sermons are available online, and you can hear those sermons through the book of Deuteronomy. But we come now this morning to the book of Joshua. Let me just tell you where we're going to be this morning in verses 1 through 9. Today, we're going to learn that God's promises are not dependent on people, but his unbreakable word. God's promises are not dependent on people, but on his unbreakable word. We are in the book of Joshua, and let me just, if I can, set the scene for you so that you have a sense of bearings as to where you are. Going all the way back to the book of Genesis, you don't have to turn there, I'll just simply reference it to you this morning. God, through the descendants of, Ab- of, uh, of Adam, continues to bless society, providing for them, though they now live in light of the fall, the disobedience to God. And in Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to a man whose original name is Abram, who's later renamed by God Abraham whose wife is known as Sarah, who's later known as Sarah. It's an older man and woman, and they're living in a part of the Middle East. And God says, in the land of Ur, you are. God says, I want to call you out of here. I have a different place for you, and I'm going to make you a particular head of a people. This is a particularly fanciful story because you're like, God, I think you picked the wrong people. We're old, and we've got no kids. God says that doesn't matter, and that's even why their first son is named Isaac, whose name is Laughter, because they laughed at God when God made this promise to them. His promise from Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 was that as far as you can see, as many stars in the sky as you can imagine and see with your own eyes, your distance will be greater than that, and I will bless you. That sounds great, but honestly, it doesn't look too good for them throughout the beginning part of their history. He has sons who has sons, and they continue to have more kids. And eventually, as we continue to see throughout what's known as the patriarchs, they come into the land of Egypt, not by choice. Original one goes by slavery. The others go by famine. But God moves his people for his purposes and provides for them. Or so it initially seems, but then they get brought into slavery. That looks like, wait a minute, is there a return on this relationship? Is there a warranty? Can we get our money back on this deal? They're in slavery for hundreds of years. And then God raises up another Israelite who's born in slavery but adopted by Pharaoh's daughter 
As he was supposed to be killed, he's adopted and raised in nothing less than the Egyptian court. He's taught the greatest of lessons. He's given the greatest of educations only for this guy to raise up and see one of his people, an Israelite, being unjustly treated by an Egyptian. And so he kills the Egyptian and then he takes off. Why? Because now he's wanted for murder. And so he goes and lives in the wilderness, gets married, and ends up saying, you know what? I'm good. For 40 more years, he lives like that. And God says, oh, I'm just getting started with you. Moses is like, I, I just so clear, I'm 80 years old. I'm 80 years old. There's nothing left for me. And God says, I've just been preparing you for this time. So God uses Moses and sends him back to the last place he wants to go on earth, to Egypt. And he says, I am who I am has sent me. And he performs 10 miracles, these 10 plagues by which the 10th and final one, the introduction of the Passover, forces Pharaoh to let the people go. Pharaoh later changes his mind. That doesn't work out well for him as his entire military force is crushed in the Red Sea as the sea is parted for the people of Israel, but then folds on upon the, the Egyptian military. They're like, okay, victory, right? We're good to go. Oh, it's not so easy. Why? Because these people have been provided for, they get scared. Just like you and I get scared. You come in the new seasons, new opportunities, and because you can't see it, you don't want to believe it. Just like them, and so is it with us. And they start making the craziest of requests of Moses. You know what the request is? We want to go back to Egypt and be slaves again. We want to go back there. We think that's better because at least we know what we got to do. And God says, you know what? Their lack of faith, they're not going to enter the promised land. And because they're not going to enter the promised land, I'm going to let every single one of them die except two of them, named Joshua and Caleb. Because when I sent 12 spies into the promised land, only of those 12, two came back and said, we can do this. The other 10 says, we can't. It says, fine, for your faith, you'll be rewarded, Joshua and Caleb, and the others of you will die. But your kids, they're going to inherit the land. In Deuteronomy, is Moses saying, all right, guys, take two. I had this conversation with your parents. It didn't go too well. Listen to me this time. Listen to me. And he gives them the Ten Commandments again. That's what Deuteronomy means, the second law. He's giving them the, the commands of God a second time to a new generation. And he says, I'm preparing you to enter into the promised land. You're going to cross the Jordan River. And that brings us to where we are today in the book of Joshua, chapter 1. Follow along as I read verses 1 to 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord... The Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness... And this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates and all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. 
Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. There's three lessons we're going to see here in verses 1 to 9 that will set up the entire book of Joshua for us. And I do not want you to miss them because they're not only important for you to understand throughout the entire book, they're important for you and I to understand even today as we sit here in this pew in Miami. Lesson number one, the guarantee of God's promise. The guarantee of God's promise. God made a promise of land, and it is quite an area of land. He describes that in verses 2 through 4 over this Jordan, and he describes the area that's going to be, that, that your soul, your foot will tread upon. He starts to describe from the wilderness to Lebanon, from the Euphrates to the Great Sea, the land of the Hittites. He is making a promise to them. This promise that he makes to them is rooted in history. It's what was first said to not them, but to their forefathers before them. In fact, as I said a minute ago, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, when God made this promise to Abraham. And he repeats it generation after generation after generation. And here he is in Joshua chapter 1 through 4, giving the guarantee of his promise. That's the content of the promise, but I want you to see the context. Because if this is lost on you, you're going to miss the significance of the entire point here. I just got finished describing to you in summary fashion the significance of Moses. Moses was remarkable. Moses, to use vernacular, was a stud. If it wasn't for Moses, arguably, these people would not exist. Here's what I mean. Keep your hand in Joshua, but turn to the left in your Bibles to Exodus. Exodus is the second book in your Bible, and if you don't have a copy of the Bible, you can listen as I read it to you, but know that we've got them for free. If you want one at the Welcome Center afterwards, you can just say, hey, I hear there's a free Bible here. I'd love to have one. Exodus chapter 32. Now, let me just set the scene here for you. Moses is on Mount Sinai with God. He is getting the Ten Commandments, these tablets of stone, as it says in Exodus chapter 31 verse 18. It says, he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So you're like, okay, you know, you leave, a parent goes out to dinner, perhaps on a date, leaves the kids at home and gives them clear instructions, right? Like, you know, don't play with knives. Don't turn the oven on. If you do, make sure to turn it off. Don't leave the sink running. Don't leave the bathroom running. You know, certain things are like, I don't want to come home and find the house flooded or on fire. Seems reasonable. Clear instructions parents would give. Well, it seems like Moses maybe should have given some instructions before he left. Hey, guys, just to be clear, when I'm up on the mountain talking to God, do me a favor. Don't create any golden images. 
Don't try to picture God in your own likeness so that you can feel comfortable that God's more accessible to you. And yet that's exactly what apparently they need to be told because that's exactly what they did. They created what's known as the golden calf. And ironically and tragically, they didn't just make this themselves. They made this request of Aaron, kind of Moses' right-hand man, sort of the, the Aaronic priesthood. And Aaron says, I'll tell you what, since you're seemingly cannot stop asking for this, go ahead and give me all of the gold jewelry you've got. I will mold it down and I'll fashion it. And we'll create a golden calf in a similar fashion to what they'd be used to back in their Egyptian days. And now God goes from unattainable and inaccessible to tangible and accessible in front of us. Moses comes down and to put it in modern day vernacular, loses his mind. Rightly so. With holy, righteous anger, he comes back on the mountain and sees them in this place. And it is, there's a price to pay. In Exodus chapter 32, you can see that, what ends up happening there, what he does with them. How they have corrupted themselves, as God says in verse 7 of Exodus 32. And what, what God did with them, and it says in verse 19, as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made, burned it with fire, ground it to powder, and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. <laughs> Homeboy's not playing. There's a reason he had them do this. And then look what happens in verse 21. Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. They're set on evil. I love how Aaron is like just taking a page out of the playbook from Adam and Eve in Genesis, taking no responsibility. Look at verse 24. So I said to them, let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. I'm not to blame. The fire is to blame. It just, it just happened. I just, I just dumped it in and like, behold, a calf. No responsibility. The consequence is overwhelming. God gives them instruction what to do. Verse 27, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you. Talking to the sons of Levi here. Go to and fro from the gate to the gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses all that day, and about 3,000 men of the people fell. Moses said, today you have ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that each might bestow a blessing upon you this day. And here's the key. Look at verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Jump ahead to Exodus 34. Two chapters later, the Lord said to Moses in verse 1, cut for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first. This is the second printing, if you will. And I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets. And it says in verse 6, 
The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for as a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. What's happening here? Moses is repeatedly interceding on behalf of these people to be spared from what otherwise would be the righteous consequence of their sin. And he's saying, Lord, don't do it because they deserve it. Do it as a way to show your glory to the nations. You could say, outside of the theological work of God's doing, you could say, humanly speaking, the people of Israel coming into Joshua even have a chance at entering the Jordan River because Moses was the guy who said, I vouch for them, God. Please show yourself to be gracious. And they continued to live. I say that to give you a sense of, now going back to Joshua chapter one, verse one. Here is the context of this promise. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, the Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Friends, you've got to imagine, if you're those people, you're thinking, we're done. If we don't have Moses, we don't have hope. These people have literally never lived a day in their life without Moses as their leader on behalf of the Lord. And now he's dead. I want you to feel the weight of that. The hopelessness. Uncertainty. And yet for God... It's just another page in history that turns. I mean, you go from, I mean, literally, look at the previous page in your Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 34. Look at verse 10. There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And yet, the next page, nothing has changed. The Lord made a promise and he's going to keep it. Why? Because the guarantee of God's promise is not dependent upon the men who communicate that promise. Moses may die, but God's promises do not die with him. Why is this important? Because today, by relevant connection, you and I are often appreciatively, understandably, tying our walk with the Lord to the people who either first taught us, even maybe bringing the gospel to us, or after having become a Christian, have helpfully taught us maybe for years. And we can't imagine walking with the Lord without that person, that voice in our life. It could be a parent. It could be a pastor. For some of you, it's famous preachers. 
And you know what happens with every single one of them? They die. They die. But you know what doesn't happen with them? God's promises don't die. The point is not we should not appreciate the people that God has used in our past no more than the Israelites should not appreciate and honor Moses. But that was not the point. Moses was a vehicle. He was, if you could think of it like an Old Testament sort of type, he was a foreshadowing of what would be ultimately accomplished in Christ because where every other human will fail you by disappointment or by eventual death, Christ never will. And so this is sometimes, to be honest, why death becomes a very painful but sometimes needed audit as to where is our hope best found. It does not mean we don't grieve. Oh, we grieve. We grieve the loss of the gifts that God has given, the children that we have raised, the spouses we've been married to, the siblings that we grew up with, the relationships of the dear friendships we've known for decades. Oh, how we grieve the loss of them. But we are not undone. Because God's commitment to us was never based upon those people's presence with us. And these people need to learn that just like you and I need to learn that today. Secondly, the encouragement of God's presence. So now the guarantee of God's promise, also the encouragement of God's presence. Let's jump back into the text in Joshua 1. Look at what it says there in verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Jump down to verse nine. Have I not commanded, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord God is with you wherever you go. Let's get a sneak peek. Jump down to verse 17. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. There is a reality here, and I'm reminded of the story that's often on repeat. Back in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is having his initial conversation with God, the whole burning bush moment. For those of you who are not familiar with it, you should look up and read it. It's kind of a mind-blowing conversation. God appears to Moses in the wilderness in a burning bush, and they're having a conversation, and he's like, hey, Moses, I'm going to send you. And Moses is like, uh, uh, Me? I don't, I, don't, I don't think you should send me. First of all, I'm wanted there. Second of all, I'm not the best spokesman. He claims that he stutters. Whether or not it's true or not, we don't know for sure. We don't know if he's just giving an excuse or if he really had a speech impediment. The point is he's like, I am disqualified. And what's interesting is in Exodus chapter 3, you have the same thing that's happening here in Joshua chapter 1. Exodus chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, God says to Moses, I will be with you. Just like he says here, in verse 5, I will be with you. Now, why does this matter? This is not some type of sentimental God is like a big blanket. He's going to sort of come be present with you. He is saying, listen, you are about to encounter some overwhelming obstacles. Overwhelming that if it was simply based upon your capacity, your intelligence, and your proven track record, you're going to fail. You're going to fail. You don't stand a chance. Let's just concede that point. He says, the game changer is I'm going to be with you. His promise 
of presence is an encouragement to them. Why do I say this? Because look at what he says in verse 6. It happens in verse 6, verse 7, verse 9. What's the implication? Well, it's not implied, it's stated. Be strong and courageous, verse 6. Verse 7, be strong and very courageous. Verse 9, be strong and courageous. Friends, let me help you just understand the very term, etymologically speaking, of the word encouragement. Do you know what the word encouragement means? It means to put courage into. Someone that's wavering or wandering, someone who's sort of failing and faltering, someone who's like, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, this is sometimes what parents have to do when kids go into middle school for the first time. Go into high school for the first time, you're like, it's different today, mom. I'm just telling you, kids, they're cruel. And sometimes when you're stepping into that space as a teenager, you're stepping into some new space at work, you, you feel that sense of fear and you get a friend or you get a parent who says, listen, I understand and let me tell you how I can relate to that and let me tell you how God helped me in that moment. In that moment, what they're doing is they're giving you a pep talk. It's like a spiritual coach saying, hey, you're about to go on the field and they're about to ram their heads at you. They're going to try to tackle you, but you're going to get up after that. And you're going to get back and play. They're putting courage in you to prepare you for the challenge ahead. And that's exactly what God is saying. God is not drawing the people to Joshua as the provider. God is drawing Joshua and the people to his presence. You might be saying, well, that's great. I'm not trying to conquer a land. I'm just trying to overcome my co-working environment that's overwhelming to me with either demanding boss or unethical people who I'm just scared to go public with being a Christian and or a relative that I don't want them to know that I'm a Christian. My fear is not crossing a river. My fear is picking up the phone. My fear is walking across the cubicle and having a conversation. May I remind you of what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Friends, I encourage you to write that down. Hebrews 13, verse 5 and 6. Put that on a stick of note this week. Put that on an index card. Put that in front of your, your dash of your car or perhaps at work. Be reminded of the promise God makes to you for those of you whose faith is in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. This is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 28. I am present with you to the end of the age. His presence gives us confidence to be strong and courageous. Third and final, the centrality of God's word. We talked about the guarantee of God's promise, the encouragement of God's presence, now the centrality of God's word. Look at what's going on here in this conversation. Moses is having, I mean, excuse me, Joshua is having this conversation with God and what the Lord is telling him. And then it says in verse seven and eight, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, 
so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. It's interesting to me to sort of see the tension of what's in the text, which is God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God's making a promise because of who he is, but God's also making a command because of what they're called to do. You see that here in the text. He wants them to be strong and courageous, but then they have a responsibility. He expects them to take action. He expects Joshua that the same word that the Moses was abiding by, that Joshua would abide by, and that the people that Joshua would lead would abide by, that this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but shall, you shall meditate on it day and night. Friends, can I just be candid with you on why some of you keep losing in the battle against sin in this world? Because you want to cross the Jordan River into ease simply based on a prayer and not a passionate pursuit of God and his word. That would be a mistaken representation of how it is with the Lord and his people. God gives us the grace to not only hear from him, be pledged by him to us, but also to be clearly taught by him of what to do. Think with me if you can. Go to Psalm chapter 1. Look with me. It's just the first psalm. You say, where's Psalm? Psalm's in the very middle of your Bible. Psalm 1. It's really a compare of godly and godless. Godly verses 1 to 3. The godless are verses 4 to 6. Look at the godly in verses 1 to 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Okay, so he's about to walk, not stand, not sit. What's he supposed to do? Verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. What's the consequence? Verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. I don't know how many of you have ever heard me address this with some of you, but it's what I refer to as fire drill Christianity. You know, when you're in school, perhaps in places of employment, you are being prepared for the possibility if there's a fire. They need to figure out, particularly in a school context, how do we get hundreds, if not thousands of kids out of this building as quickly as possible to safety? In the hopes that we're well trained for it, that it'll never come. But if it comes, we'll be prepared. And so they do these things randomly, different times. Now, today, they often tell the parents, the parents aren't freaking out about what happened at school. Fire drill Christianity is the opportunity for you to walk by, live by, keep company with other people next to you who are going through different trials and tribulations. And for you to ask yourself the question, how would I respond in that situation? How would I deal with that temptation? Am I ready? Am I ready? The reality is trials rarely ever announce themselves. Hey, six months from now, you're about to get diagnosed with cancer. You should probably start reading on how you can trust God now. 
You should probably be being reminded of your identity in Christ. I just want to get you ready. Six months out, you're about to get a trial. Four months from now, that girlfriend you've had for a couple of years, she's about to break up with you. You're about to go through a very dark season. Every slow song in the, on Spotify is going to make you sad. Every couple walking on the streets is going to make you depressed. You should be prepared now for that breakup that's coming in four months. But two months from now, it'll be the last time you have your child text you back. You won't know where they are. They won't text you. They're living in another state or so you think. You don't know what's coming. What often happens is that a lot of us as Christians get caught flat-footed. We're not prepared. Because we have not been delighting in, loving, walking with God and his word. We have a very spiritually immature, very shallow understanding of the word of God, enough to know the truth of the gospel and believe in Christ, but not much more to be maturing in Christ. And then a trial comes, and what do we do? We ask questions of God. Where was God? It's an understandable question, but the answer is already there in front of you. Now, I don't say that to be insensitive to the trials that you and I are experiencing throughout life. But the reality is Joshua knows what God is teaching him and what Joshua is teaching the people. We're about to go into battle and it is going to be brutal. And I can guarantee what we're about to experience, you're about to doubt, does God really have our back? So he's having a pregame speech right here to prepare them for what's to come so that they're ready. And I don't know what God's doing in your life right now. But is it possible that for some of you, God through his word in Joshua is having a pregame speech for what's coming? Not ominously, wisely in the mystery of his plan to mature you, to grow you, but coming in a way that you would not expect. And the question is, are you ready? You notice as he has this conversation with Joshua, the centrality of God's word is important for them to pass the test that will come. Last year, on September 8th, 2022, Elizabeth II, Queen of the United Kingdom, died at Balmoral Castle in Scotland at the age of 96. The world watched, many grieved, and were captivated then, subsequently, by the crowning of a new king. And then you know what happened next? People went on with their lives. You probably have not thought about the Queen of England's death in weeks, if not months. She was the queen of England for most of her life. The oldest reigning monarch. And today, most people don't even think about her. How do I say that? Because I think in the spirit of humility, we have to ask ourselves the question, what are we living for? Who are we living for? Moses had some profound lessons to teach, as did Joshua. But let me give the last word again to C.T. Studd, who says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. 
May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.